0: Hello and welcome back to Close to Reads. Here on the Close Reads podcast network, I'm David Kern, and I'm joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi and Tim, welcome back. Happy New Year. Happy
1: New Year. Happy New two Year. Two days
0: away. Yeah, we're recording on December thirtieth. It's Monday. It's the Monday after Christmas, so uh, you know we're all a little frazzled, a little out of it. But you know we got to give the people what they want, as they say on one podcast that I listen to. And uh, presumably, what the people want is to listen to another episode of Close Reads on "Peace Like a River"
1: by Lee Finger. Because yes. on the Facebook page, based on the Facebook page, people are cuckoo for this book. I know. Oh,
2: it's so good! I can't wait to talk about it. After all the Christmas festivities, all the cooking and the dishes, this is just what we need. It's good.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about the question of redemption in just a second. I want to start there because we finished. We we It came up in the last episode, and I want to dive right back into that. But before we do that, I want to remind people how they can get in touch and how they can participate in the conversation. If you're a listener who wants to do that, you can head over to Facebook. You can search Close Reads in the little search bar on Facebook, and you can then click that Join button and join the conversation there if you have not already done so. Of course, you can also follow us on Twitter and on Instagram, and our account for that is at Close Reads Pods. And then you can email us at closereadspodcast at gmail.com. The end of this book, we will answer your questions, and so you can start posting those on the Facebook group, or you can email them to us. And once we get to the end of the book, we'll post a place on Facebook where those can all get collected as well. So, those of you who've been listening for a long time, you know the drill. But uh, you know, if you're new, uh, we picked up some new listeners recently. Then we we always love to hear from you. So please feel free to participate, send in questions, disagree, you know, start arguments, whatever you need to do. Uh, We are we are happy to have you join us in this conversation. But let's dive into this this episode. The very first line of the section that we read today, and for today we read pages fifty-one through ninety-three. The very first line touches on what um, our narrator calls uh, the predicament, the redemptive glow of the predicament. So I feel like we might as well dive right in there because we talked about a little bit about how you know we're supposed to look at the the choice that Davy made to shoot the to shoot the two uh, intruders who are clearly bad guys. And it says, no one would be more annoyed than Davy if I tried to recast the predicament under some redemptive glow. And I was wondering, as you read these, these three chapters, the, I think it was three chapters, these just under 50 pages, if your feelings about the, the, the justification of what he did have changed. Did, did, has your thought process on whether he was just in shooting those two boys? Has it changed? Did it change during this reading? And then, well, I'll start there. So Heidi, what do you think? I can see you uh, staring off at the ceiling. So pre- presumably a that means that I, uh, a thought, a piece of genius has entered your <laughs> and is ready to come out.
2: That's exactly what it is. <laughs> um, well, it was
1: part of the smile, Heidi, that you yeah. were kind of recognizing that genius had arrived, Were yeah, exactly. you kind of like staring off being like, Oh my gosh! It's happening again. Yeah.
2: Um, I, this is—I'm so used to this sensation. So I'm surprised I even showed it on my face. Yeah, she looked um, straight at the yeah. light bulb,
0: and, it's, uh-huh. and it was like a subconscious way of saying,
1: "Oh, wow!" I really,
2: I really want that. What you guys are saying to be true, but <laughs> I think I'm—I'm I'm afraid that in fact it is rather that I barely even thought about that question during the reading. But mm. it's a super important question. I think that was the light bulb of. Oh, that's what I should be thinking about, but I'm not. As I'm, as I've, as I was reading this section, I, I admit I was, I was surprised at what came out during the trial, um, and I, I was very impressed with the writing, the craft of the writing, and that it unfolded so beautifully and seamlessly. Uh, that, uh, that, uh, the thought that Davy had broken the boys' windows in order to lure them to the house and put them down, right? Like, that's, it was completely, that that did surprise me, but mm-hmm. I admit that my focus yeah. has been the impact on the family, not the justice of Davy's actions. It's very clear, like, there's clues along the way that Davy is, you know, he's an outlaw. This is a Western. Like, he's, he is sundown. Like, that's he, he's taking matters into his own hands, and in his mind, that's justice, and he's willing to take the consequences. And I realize that's an underlying contemplation of the of the novel, but I've been sure, so yeah. focused on the relationships that that part of it hasn't been primary on my mind, which is mm. weird.
0: Mm. Well, Tim, what about you? I mean, did, was that something you were thinking about, or, or that was, you know?
1: I At the end of the last podcast, I said... I am confident that Davey did something to the boys that's not yet been reported. You did say it. that. Good book, job. I felt confident about it because the boys acted twice. The kind of, I can't remember the name of the boys right now, but the bad guys
0: Tommy um, and uh... Uh, Israel. Israel. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, which is interesting. Right?
1: I, yeah, I'm wondering why that is going to be, why the name Israel. I have a small theory, but that's for another podcast. Um, they acted twice against the family with nothing in between having been reported to us. And I knew that David was waiting because he had kind of poked the bear. He had gone and done something to them as a setup so that he'd be prepared. So I, I was not surprised to T-B-H, to be honest. <laughs> So
2: I did say that. I forgot that you said that.
1: Good what is job. the
0: point of saying TVH? Thank you, Heidi. and you, Just going to say what TVH stands for.
2: So you to know that you know what the kids are saying.
1: Exactly to yep. to appeal to a younger audience, David. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Omg, your
0: Everybody days on this show it, may right. be numbered.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Unless okay. it's endearing and everyone thinks it's adorable. So
0: yeah. Well, now they're going to. Um, so, it, I just thought it was interesting that that our narrator and, and anger comes right out and sort of recasts the situation at the beginning of this chapter, at the beginning of the chapter, Peeking at Eternity, which begins on page 51. As I read, he says, no one would be more annoyed than Davy if I tried to recast the predicament under some redemptive glow. Two boys were dead in our house, and there was no bright side to the matter. And... You know, on the one hand, it feels like it kind of it kind of ch- changes the the nature of the story there, right? Like it yeah. it changes what you think the story is going to be. If you've never read it before, then at the end of the the section where he shoots them, it maybe it feels like it's going to be something of a uh, of a sort of typical adventure. There's going to be some noir elements to it. It's going to be a little bit of a western. It's going to have you know some western uh, justice, you know, at play. But then immediately, at the beginning of the next section, it's, it's sort of like, well, all those things may be true. They may be characteristics of this novel that are accurate. But also, there's not really a question of whether he should have done what he did. You know, right. We're not saying that the you know, it was, it's always going to be tragic that these two boys were dead, no matter whether he felt like it was justified or not. And I was struck by the fact that even the Davy has no voice in these next few chapters.
1: Yeah. I don't oh, think yeah.
0: Maybe more than one or two. He he says a few things, but really right. he doesn't. We hear from the we hear most of what he said through the lawyers, and then we hear things you know after the fact. But it's not he doesn't. There's all these there's all these scenes of of um, our narrator wanting to interact with his brother, but not yeah. being able to. Yeah. even in the courtroom where uh, Davy looks at him and is trying to make him laugh. And there's, you know, he has this longing, or narrator has this longing for for interaction with him. But our anger doesn't give that to us, and so it Mm -hmm. seems to take the take, you know, almost like take Davy's voice away in a sense. Do you think that if anger had given Davy more voice, if he'd been able to make his case, it would have kind of subverted? what he's doing here at the beginning of this chapter where he's saying there's no bright side to the matter, there is no redemptive glow to this. So, so, by, not, so by keeping Davy kind of in the background, he is able to reinforce that idea. And, and, and so again, had he given Davy a bunch of chances to defend himself verbally, would that have changed? I mean, maybe it makes his case, maybe we understand his defense, defense case a little bit better, but in terms of the novel itself, does it alter too much the questions that he's asking?
2: yes i think it does i think it would change everything if davy was given a voice here the almost the whole weight of these chapters rests on the fact that davy is increasingly exposed for having <laughs> um You know, the newspaper articles, for example, the newspaper articles start out by, which is brilliant on Anger's part, like they start out by defending Davey and calling him a hero, which is what we want to do in our minds. And then they take a turn and they start accusing him. And um, which is kind of what we want to do once the facts come out, right? But it continually reminds Mm -hmm. us through Ruben's reaction to the newspaper articles that there's something going on here that's not as simple as that um that that the question in in davy's mind it seems as though the reason he's not defending himself is because he already knows he's already decided to follow a different kind of justice than what's given by the law and so uh, and he wants to define it himself and he'll take the consequences for that but Will he? Because he runs away, right? So there's, again, that constant point-counterpoint question of what is justice, and Davy subverts all of it. And if he defends himself, he's no longer subverting it, right? His actions aren't speaking for themselves. Hmm. And throwing down a gauntlet for us as the readers and the characters in the story. Well, For me, Heidi, I I think he's...
1: David's right, um, we don't get anything from Davy. We hardly get anything from him in the first section that we read right he's kind of he's in the corner sort of, and in this section, as David said, everything's sort of reported to us by the lawyer. We get very few lines from Davy, but it, it seems like what Davy wants is um Davy doesn't want to. Fight this. He fe- It seems like he feels justified, mm-hmm. and I don't know that if we got more from David directly, Davy directly, that it would change our point of view. But, and maybe this is like I've already kind of like shaped what I think this book is about, perhaps prematurely. But I think this book is about whether or not Davy can accept can basically give can say i will not pursue um i will not participate in this cycle of retribution that was started by these two boys i'm going to willingly say no to that maybe you know like i'll defend myself but i'm not going to antagonize the point and I think that we, so that's what I'm kind of thinking this book is, that's the direction that we're going. And Davy is refusing to say, no, he wants to escalate the violence and he's not willing, like someone like Martin Luther King Jr. to pay for his sort of like what he might consider, um, his, his attempt to kind of exact justice. He won't say to the law, I'm okay. Do with me what you will, because I'm conscientiously breaking the law because I think the law is unjust. If he was doing that, he would have stayed in jail. Okay. But all this is kind of like a little bit aside from the question that David asked, which is if we heard more from Davy, would that change our opinions? I don't know. I kind of think no, I, I because for me the point is that david davy is not accepting he's not turning away and by the way at some point in this podcast i want to talk about the father's slap of the superintendent it seems to me like the father is sort of the counterpoint to davy he's willing to suffer the injustice that these two boys are bringing but also in a way he's not um because he's the one who oh gosh, I don't know. The the father is well, let's, is yeah, let's talk
0: let's talk about yeah. this now. So there's the scene where there's there's two kind of big aside scenes that we yeah. get in this section. So most of the sort of a plot, so to speak, is is the the trial, right? Kind of building up to the trial and the lawyers coming over and um all those things that go on there the family life dealing with the aftermath then there's two asides. one is the story of David's when David's a baby and the mother's still around and the tornado that somehow their father survives and so there's that we'll talk about that in a minute and then there's the second aside is where the father Jeremiah he loses his job as the janitor um to the
1: uh we'll call that the scatological
0: plot <laughs> the scatological <laughs> plot <laughs> Nice. Uh, yeah so that so there's the, and the, so, the, so what you're talking about there is where he loses his job. The, the, the superintendent or the principal or whatever, the school, uh, chooses in front of Ruben chooses to, uh, you know, pick, pick a fight with his father and make up a bunch of lies. And then, well, actually they're probably not lies. He just misinterpreted them because he says that he see that people have seen Jeremiah down in the basement, stumbling around. He says he fell over at church, all these things. And he takes it or he, he allows that to mean that he was, you know, drinking or something like that. And so then he fires uh, Reuben's father in front of the whole school. And then Reuben's father goes up to him and looks like he's going to punch him and instead just taps him on the cheek and then walks away. And so there's, there's, uh, there's we can talk about what Reuben, how Reuben interprets that. Um, but let, so let's dive into this question first of whether Davy and Jeremiah are counterpoints to one another. Can you, let, let's get to the bottom of that Assertion that you're making there. Can you lay out your your case there, and we can see if we can either we either agree or disagree, and then we'll go into the specific scene where he slaps him.
1: Yeah. Um. So his father's first action, which is in response to um, the two boys' attack on uh, um, Davy's girlfriend, that seems like a justified act of justice. He's not. Kind of escalating a wrong done to him, he's thwarting a wrong done to another after that happens, it kind of sets this um, it sets this I don't know what you would call it this this avalanche in motion in which the boys are are revenging upon their family. So when they exhibit a when the father comes exhibit a that the father is not escalating, when he comes home and there's pitch all over the front door what does the father do he cleans the pitch off he doesn't go and get like a blunt cudgel by which he can you know like smash the boys shins no he cleans up the mess that they made and i think if i recall correctly that's kind of the end of it to him when swede is abducted briefly um what does he do he doesn't go after the boys but he talks to the sheriff. Now, Davy, on the other hand, is clearly plotting. We've seen not from his own mouth, but from other reports, Davy is plotting a revenge. He goes and he kind of pokes the boys and then waits back for them to enter the house. When they do, he shoots them. And when he shoots them, he doesn't just shoot in self-defense, but kind of in a cold-blooded act. He stands up and shoots one of them kind of execution style when he's already been, when he's already defended himself and ends that boy's life. So so those are the two kind of like plot driven things that I would say, for me, seem to set up Davey and father as point counterpoint. And then the other aspects of the father's character, which are, he seems like he's a very devout man. He's reading his Bible. He's allows himself to be slain in the spirit at the church service. He is so gentle with the kids. So those are the things that make me think the father in some ways is being described to us. He's he's a holy man. However, the, the exception that I've seen right now is he does respond to the superintendents. I mean, the superintendent is a clown. We all know that, but Davy's father retaliates, and that surprised me because I did not think that previous that Davy's father would have been. I think he would have been the kind of man to turn the other cheek, but instead he gave the blow.
0: There's. The, the, I was thinking while you're talking that in a way, it seems like. I, I like that Heidi brought up that maybe uh, maybe Davy's like an outlaw, you know that he's got all the markings of that sort of classic Western archetype, or if he's not an outlaw, he's at least, let's say a cowboy, (laughs) you know, or some sort of like, you know, there's a, there's a sort of, um, Western, you know, approach to justice, like a sort of classic, you know, cowboy lonesome dove sort of approach to justice that, that uh, he could, he could, he would fit in, in all the pretty horses, Tim.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He would. Um, strong, silent type. Yeah.
0: but then on the other- on the other hand, you know his, his the father seems to have a sort of almost like a medieval code like you know the reason he gets aggressive with the boys is because they're you know it's almost like they're they're kind of going after a damsel in distress right
1: right they're impugning and, the virtue of a fair maiden
0: and so he he takes action then, and then at that point it's about de escalating as much as possible and you know, there's a they each have a sort of code, but those codes are very different. You know, like for Davey, the code is, um, you know, I'm gonna end this, right? Like, yeah, let's meet yeah. in the streets and have a gunfight and I'm gonna yeah. end it. And I'm gonna, you know, that work it, it's it's like, you're a bad guy, so whatever I do to you is justified, but it's gonna end, you know, we're gonna have a gunfight, you know? And for the for the for uh the father it's sort of like more like high noon, right? Where you know, he, he, I don't know if you guys have seen, have you seen High Noon, in the Gary Cooper movie? Classic?
1: Nope. A long time ago.
0: So he's the sheriff and these outlaws are coming and he's, you know, he basically has to face them himself. And he, you know, he, uh, ide- he ideally it would be, he would deescalate everything. Right. So he's got that kind of a, that kind of an approach to it. Um, but David, incidentally, do you, John Wayne hated that
1: movie. Do you agree that that Davy's father by slapping the superintendent after Davy's father gets fired by him mm-hmm. was, did that feel like a break in character? I mean, a deliberate break in character from our author, no doubt, but did that feel like, oh, this is not the man that I thought he was or did that seem like, no, Davy's father would act this way?
0: That's a good question. I personally, I, well, Heidi, what do you think about this? I, I, I was going to say, I think it's surprising, but not a break in character, if that makes okay. sense. Yeah. So maybe maybe there's a fine line in what what, what, is, what I'm saying, well, between what we're saying. What do you think, Heidi? Yeah.
2: Well, I'm going to piggyback on a couple of things that you both said. I, At the beginning of the section, we get the story about the father uh, surviving the tornado and giving up his glowing new career as a doctor and then losing his wife because of it, becoming a janitor. So I, at last week we talked about what we thought of the father's inaction so far. And I feel like this section has been me a frame. Specifically that story has given me a framework and I'm going to take a stand and say, I don't think he's a man of inaction. I think he's a saintly man. So I, When I read a novel for the first time, a complicated novel, I will typically suspend disbelief and believe everything the narrator is telling me and then go back and read it differently another time. So that's how I'm reading Peace Like a River. I believe everything he's saying about his father and the miracles within the world of the story. And um, so... Anyway, that's the foundation of what I'm about to say that the father and that particular, because of the tornado, he made a radically countercultural choice um, uh, and uh, to be a merciful, saintly man. And you, you mentioned de escalating, David, and living by a code. Uh, and so I think that the father's code is radical countercultural mercy, right? I think Davy is exactly like his father, exactly like his father. Just he orients that strength of character towards radical countercultural justice. And I think those two things are the point counterpoint of Davy and his father. Justice and one mercy. code of mercy and one code of justice. So the that action so, of the healing of the man who's fired him, who has treated him with such contempt publicly and privately, mm-hmm. you know, the scatological plotline <laughs> that is a, a radical act of mercy. And I'm going to make a prediction like, like Tim did. He made that brilliant prediction that there's more to the story of the boys. I think there's more to this story of the father. I think I'm wondering oh, if yeah. every, every act of mercy that we're seeing is going to come back chiastically to produce salvation for this family. Something as simple as like feeding the man with, I can't remember his name now, but the man who came to the house on Swede's birthday. And I was like mad at him for not setting the boundary and sending that guy away. And yeah. um,
0: right, like yeah, his but daughter's birthday, person.
2: like three days after she's been molested, like give her a day. So, um, there's, but now I'm thinking, I wonder if somehow that's going to come back. I wonder if the action toward the superintendent, I wonder if these two counterpoints, radical mercy and radical justice, if these are kind of the poles of the story and we're going to travel along and see how these things reap salvation for this family.
1: So Heidi, if that's true, and I can totally imagine kind of like radical justice and radical mercy is kind of like the, the two defining poles of the story the rails that we're going to ride on then i would i would think that you would find it confusing or really complicating that the father when fired publicly by the superintendent did not wrap his arms around the superintendent and say you know have mercy upon him he knows not what he does or something like that i think that's what he did but by slapping him,
2: but he heals him. It was a touch of healing. His boils go away, and he's healed. So, and 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 I think as Christ does, even when Christ is healing, when when Christ is inviting the Pharisees, he does heap some shame upon them for their actions. He calls them out, and publicly exposing their sin, but also inviting them to be saved. And I, I think, um, I'm not trying to spiritualize it or say, you know, say, but it's, I am saying that I think that that's exactly what he does is he, he, there's some kind of shaming in that action, but a yeah. true shame, a healthy shame, and then also a healing. So I, I do think that's an act of radical mercy, the same way that I think it's an act of radical mercy to beat. Those boys up for attacking a young woman. Agreed. Agreed. Because that lets them know their their sin, but also that actually is truly protecting the girl. It's mercy on her and on them. An invitation to be bested by a better man. Mm -hmm. Um. So I I cast him in the role of like a Western sheriff the same way I'd cast Davy in one. That's why I say I think the two men are exactly the same. They're just like in terms of their strength of character, but two opposite, two questionable poles. And then Ruben, who seems like a pretty normal kind of kid, is being torn apart by this, right? He can't decide which... Which to follow. Mm-hmm. And he's being, you know, and we see through his breathing problems how internally disoriented he is all the time. And he can't catch his breath in the world. He can't figure it out because he's like a normal kid. He's like the vessel through which we see the costliness of these two opposing worldviews, I guess.
0: Well, at the beginning of this section on 51, it even, this is right after. He, Davy shoots the kid. It says, "I recall a sensation of splitting in two, yes. of becoming smaller." So, it, yeah, I think he, you know, he literally feels that inside of him. He, you know, he describes it as feeling like he's being torn in two. Right. There's, there's several different instances where the book, yeah, a lot of books will foreshadow dour events. Yeah, <laughs> like foreshadow that something bad is going to happen. This book, it does a little bit of that, but it also just very directly keeps referencing the idea of good things happening so yes. at the end of the section where you know on page 51 it says that davy was always impatient with our family's general insistence that things turn out for the best then there's the section um on page 77 at the beginning of that you know the section we're just talking about with the superintendent or the principal or whatever it was it says I knew dad was the smartest, best-hearted, most capable man in any room he occupied. Knew, too, he was, that he was beloved by God, that whatever he touched was apt to prosper, sometimes in mighty and inexplicable style. So that is perhaps a bit of uh, foreshadowing for the whole book. But also, two things come to mind. One, it foreshadows that in a couple pages, he's literally going to touch the guy's face.
2: Huh.
0: Um, and, you know, the, so then the question of whether we does his face you know prosper <laughs> right. uh, but then also
2: huh.
0: one of the questions of the book especially this far it seems to me is how much of this is true like how much of of this power that that Jeremiah Land seems to have is or at least the perspective that Reuben has is is, is accurate because if you want to be skeptical about it you can say well you know this is the imagination of of a young boy who's been through a lot taking stories and making them just a little bit tall. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, Ruben's 11 going through a lot. yeah, Yeah. 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 He's, he
0: has already experienced a lot of trauma in his life. His mother laughs. He has this problem with his breathing. Um, you know, his sister's got all these imagining this big imagination. And so maybe this is his way of, of the way he sees the world is just, um, you know he sees his father as maybe more of a hero than he is so if yeah, you want to be skeptical you can be. say that
1: yeah right he, yeah. Needs, he needs him to yeah.
0: be on the other hand we can take it at face value and we can say jeremiah Land is you know a sort of uh, a holy figure a whole yeah a holy figure almost like a sort of you know saint francis or something where just things, yeah. weird things happen when he's around um that he has this sort of you know god breathed power so to speak um, do you have a sense at this point in the book which way we're supposed to lean on that? Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Tim, what do you think about that? And-
1: it's funny. I, I Heidi said earlier that she believes the narrative account, and I assume Heidi that you included kind of Ruben's direct reports to us. Yeah, I, I want to say the narrator does seem to be kind of operating on, with, on in two different notes, both the boyish Ruben and there's kind of a more mature narrator the story is being told by in both keys, if that makes right. sense. And so yes. I'm asking you, Heidi, I think you said earlier that you believe you kind of believe both of them. Is that true? Yes. Cause I do. I do. I'm just like, I'm just accepting that Jeremiah is like, walking on air on occasions, you know, I, I'm, I'm believing what Ruben says and maybe I'll find out a little bit later. Yeah. That, that Ruben was telling tall tales and I, I don't think I'll feel betrayed because I think the author has set us up to be, to hold with a little bit of skepticism these reports, because we don't see them in everyday life. We don't experience these sorts of things. And so even Reuben is like, he seems like he's willing to admit a little bit of skepticism that his father levitated, but he believes it. And I'm kind of, I'm right there with him. I believe what Reuben is reporting.
2: Yeah, so do I. I think they could all be explained. Like, if you wanted to reduce those things, they could be explained by a traumatized boy's response to trauma, needing a hero. Like, this is meat and drink to a future psychologist. Like this, <laughs> so you could easily explain this by his own wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it. Like within the world of the story, I, I, I think it's true. And knowing, of course, that. There's so much pathos. There's, there's the element that it could be explained by just his own desire for something beyond this dysfunctional, chaotic world to be true. And, of course, he has to lean on his father because he's his only parent. So, yeah, you could explain it psychologically really easily. And I'm sure someone, I'm sure many, many readers do. I don't. I'm choosing within the story to take it at face value and believe it. It's hot, really happening. Yeah. I think that's going to be important to the story, actually. I think you have to suspend some disbelief probably in the future of the story. Otherwise, why? Right? Yeah. yeah.
1: Hey, I I have a question, a speculative question for you both. You're Davy's mom. You're living in another city. You hear the news reports about, you know, Davy, this attack, these two boys were killed. But you, it sounds like you're the one who kind of left. How's she feeling?
2: I don't know. She's so absent. And that story, I mean, I don't know. I haven't read the book, but that the story he tells about his mom leaving doesn't feel like a resolved story doesn't feel like there's going to be a moment coming up in which she shows up and
1: sees the light and
2: no, she's absent. She's absent. That is profoundly sad.
0: It's interesting to me in rereading that section, you kind of expect, I mean, it, it, for most of the book, I think to this point, you think it's going to be something like a to to kill a mockingbird situation. Right, where Atticus Finch is sort of this this widower who is still traumatized by his wife's death. And she's going to have been this great figure that everyone looks back to and sort of is constantly memorializing and remembering and thinks of in this really positive way. And it, it even feels like that in the story of the tornado, right? That she has this sort of strength of character and you know she she, she's he gives this incredible story for standing at the window right and sacrificing herself or being willing to sacrifice herself for baby davy right and then at the end of it it says everything kind of flips it's this big surprise that she she leaves because he doesn't he doesn't pursue his the the ambitions that he previously had his ambitions become much more modest um and i find that fascinating because I'm trying to think of how to say this because i th- because the sort of archetypal figure that the mother is and then and then the shadow that she leaves in her absence has a lot to say about who our characters are and how they feel about the situation they're living in. Does that make sense? Yes. I had to say that slowly because I had to figure out exactly how to say it. <laughs> um, because if she's some sort of saintly figure, this sort of saintly mother who's no longer there, then the way they remember her is going mm-hmm. to be is going to influence the life that they live and the sort of person that you know the the father figure is. Atticus seems to be doing a lot in *To Kill a Mockingbird* in remembrance of his wife his children's mother here it's almost like jeremiah our very spiritual prophetic type of character in a way drives her away because of his um commitment to whatever he decides to be after the tornado comes through and then the fact that she leaves makes her significantly less than a saintly figure and so her absence is maybe more it's haunting in a different way than if you have the saintly figure who dies. Does
2: that make
1: sense what I'm saying? I think it's a great comparison, David.
2: Yes, I completely agree. And it (laughs) has to be that way. I think that from the very beginning, we have to know what it costs to be Jeremiah Land. She can't Mm -hmm. just be, have died young and remained alive in their memory. The whole point is the world is not, the, the world's not ready for Davy or Jeremiah. They can't. The world is. it can't live that extreme, so they're going to be rejected as the Old Testament yeah, prophets even were, outlawed or the outlaw were. Yes. So I think that that's important to the story.
1: Hmm. Tim, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the fact that in To Kill a Mockingbird, the mother sort of haunts the narrative in a way. Like hmm. Scout's imagination is, in a, I mean, haunted in a good way. She's her memory is present. You can almost like smell her fragrance in the house. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Even
1: though she's, we, we never meet her. I don't smell the fragrance of the mother in this house. Like Mm -hmm. she's just gone. We don't know the reasons why we've get a little hint here and there, but the fact that she does not show up in her children's kind of longings says something.
0: Mm. I I was thinking about having to kill a mockingbird. There at least is a, female figure that comes into the house, right? That, like because there's the character that what's her name? Calpurnia. Calpurnia, yeah. Oh yeah. So they have this sort of motherly figure. Yeah. Right, you know, who who is who fills that role. And in a sense that that preserves the the sort of feminine touch of their mother, right? That sort of she's able to sort of preserve that sense of motherness if or or womanhood or something, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. But here the absence of women in the house is pretty profound. There's almost never women in the house. All the visitors are men. And then they go to, there's that scene where they go to the lawyer's house and it uh-huh. describes this sort of matronly figure, the lawyer's wife who's making them all food and is so kind to them and, you know, cooks all this amazing food. And, and they, and that makes the absence of women in their home loom. More stark. Yeah, yeah more stark, more dramatic, yeah. Go ahead. Right.
2: I agree. Well, and I was thinking, I wonder how many of our listeners who are moms thought, why in the world would they leave Swede at home alone with David uh, when yeah. they know that these boys, like I would never leave. Well, you live in 2019. Girl. It's true. But I think the absence of the mother to that point, is like I'm not one necessarily when you read a book I'm not one to read a book and speculate this is what they should have done the whole point of the book is that they did what they did right like that's the point so but in that in this context I thought motherlessness has had an impact on this family and Swede like the the bonds that Ruben has I mean there are times I can barely finish a page in this book because of this motherless little boy who's so haunted and like surrounded by these men who are stronger than him and he doesn't know what to do with it. Then he's so attached to Swede. And, but your point, David, I loved your point that the the narration of the book gives um, like redemptive hints. And so much of it is based on the fact that we know that Swede is okay. Right. She becomes a writer and she has this insight into the past that is that that, She and Ruben still have this bond and he's quoting her all the time. This is what Swede said about this. This is what Swede wrote down about this later. And all of that communicates this bond is going to be preserved because she's really the only woman in his life and she's his little sister. And that sense of like the sheltering of a mother is a very profound protection. And that is absent from these vulnerable small children.
0: Hmm. Hey, let's talk about Swede because we only have so much time on this Mm -hmm. podcast and there's a lot to cover. Heidi, I know you in particular want to talk about Swede's predicament. Yeah. Her creative predicament. Side note, have either of you seen Little Women yet?
2: Not yet. No. I'm making my daughter finish the book before I take her to see it. So she's mad at me about that, but I don't care. (laughs)
0: <laughs> guys guys <laughs> there's going to be some listeners who are purists who are going to be mad at me about this it is absolutely incredible
2: is it real, david from yes. everybody, probably, everybody. Probably, really? yes.
0: i've seen about 75 movies that came out in 2019 it's my second favorite movie of the year
1: no way i mean can i it,
2: call you out on something though david because you've not read little women right I know this because... <laughs>
1: His silence is, I know, telling.
2: His I silence is
0: telling. I know this. I've read part of it.
2: Okay, no, so here's why I say this. I am going to call you out on this because we had a conversation as the Forma team in which I said, I was like pre- presenting this recipe from Little Women and saying how great it was. And I said in the meeting, um, you guys have read it, right? And David, you said, no, I've not read that. I'm a guy. <laughs>
0: Well, just to be uh-huh. clear, I was joking. Just to be clear. You know that I don't
2: actually <laughs> I know. I um, know you were joking.
0: Um no, so one of the things that I love about and I'm telling you though. You uh-huh. guys have to see it. And we got to have an we got to have Okay. A, we got to add on to the you end a of an page episode. You on on it. Yeah. Okay. Or just add a like 10 minute conversation on the end of an episode okay. or whatever. I went to see it by myself. Um and I was no, the,
2: that makes oh, no, up for the comment I do this yeah. all.
0: The time. I, I do it all the time um so it doesn't really make up for the comment I love going to see movies by myself but I side note to a side note now I walked into the theater <laughs> and I looked around and I was like huh I'm the only guy here under the age of 60 <laughs> all the other all the other guys I thought
1: you, I thought you were gonna say I'm the only guy here No, well,
0: (laughs) I'm the only guy, and all the other ones were there with, like, you know, their wives, their their wives or granddaughters or something like that, right? Um, and and uh, so I went, I crept to the back of the theater, and you know, (laughs) uh, tried not to get anyone's way. But um, one of the things I love about this 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 version of the movie is that it focuses a lot on the the concept of creativity, and it was really interesting timing watching this movie at the same time as reading this book, because that's runs throughout this book as well, because Swede has this, she keeps running into these creative dilemmas, right? She's this young, uh, I hesitate to use the phrase, but she's got this sort of tomboyish, you know, vibe about her, which isn't surprising given that she's, just no woman in her life. Um, And she's, she's much like Joe in the book. Now I know Joe has sisters, but Joe's kind of, considered like this sort of tomboy independent woman who is very creative and a writer right i'm oversimplifying i understand but um she the the book is a the the version that they do in of little women that credit gerwig puts together is dealing with a lot of the questions of of creative dilemmas like how do you get through them how do you um Pursue creativity in the midst of great trials. How do you pursue creativity? How do you do the creative work that you want to do when things are stacked against you—economic things, you know, social expectations—all these sorts of things that you'd expect from an, a book that takes place in the late 1860s. But in the end, one of the things that I love—I won't. This isn't giving away too much, but I love that one of the solutions the movie offers is that your imagination is tied to your people, mm-hmm. it, you uh. know, she thinks for much of it that she has to leave. She has to escape the constraints of the world that she lives in. But then ultimately, what helps her pursue her creative endeavors is the fact that, she, that her imagination is rooted in her family. And the, the movie does this in really subtle ways throughout and then in really bold ways at the end. Like you'll, it, The lines become much clearer at the end. And I, so I really want you guys to go see it so we can talk about this. But I think something similar is going on in this book where Swede is... is Has this great imagination, right? She and she's a very gifted storyteller. She's a gifted writer, even at this young age. Uh, And she runs into this dilemma where she can't figure out how to kill Valdez. Right? Is that the name of the bad
1: guy? Yeah. Uh In her in her poem, we remember that we remember who you're talking about. Even if that's, I'm not
2: sure. It is Valdez. It is Valdez. Valdez. Okay.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And so she runs into this problem. Heidi, I know you want to talk about this scene, but I was I was loving the way for especially well at least the dilemma is so the dilemma for sweet is so tied to the dilemma that her family's in it's so tied to her imagination is so rooted so tied to her people that she doesn't know what to do with it at this point in the novel she doesn't know how to process and express the things that she's going through with her people in her story because she doesn't because she knows that as soon as she commits it to the story it becomes something permanent it becomes mm-hmm. something like prof- you know profoundly permanent in a sense so that's my segue my my long little women tied segue into this conversation and what you wanted to talk about heidi so go go ahead and say what you want to say and we'll see if it if my ramblings tie into that
2: yeah i think i was they definitely do but it's a different um it's like a, a a different facet of the prism, if that makes sense. Because I really was looking at it as this insight into this child who's just experienced profound human evil for the first time. And now she can't kill off the bad guy in her story. That's yeah. so telling. Yeah. Like that's and and how badly, badly Ruben wants her to, right? For her sake and I think for his own. Because his, he is he's the witness so his he's constantly telling other people's stories and in doing that he reveals his own but i don't even think he knows his own story he's just experiencing the world through swede and davy and jeremiah land and and so that is how he's formed he can't get a breath in the world right like he can't figure out how to breathe here and and, and he is disoriented all the time so far. And then Swede seems to be his biggest lifeline because in many ways, she's the most human out of anybody in his family. And a woman or girl, a little girl, but still that femininity. But her, the fact that she has such a vision of justice until evil happens to her and then she can't kill off the bad guy in her story, that's such a brilliant objective relative to what's happening in this family.
0: Hmm. Hey, let's read this section. If you're good with that, Tim, are you good with that? You go ahead. Go ahead. Tim. I am.
1: No, I'm good. I'm good. What what page? Start up
0: page sixty six. Let's read a couple pages here. Um, there's the section. Swede. Meantime, sat in her room. Uh, how, here, let's see, um, Tim. Why don't you start, and then how do you pick it up at the bottom of sixty seven? Like with what happened to Swede?
1: Okay. Swede meantime sat in her room whacking at the typewriter and occasionally banging her palm on the wall in frustration. This went on for hours. It was unnerving. One afternoon, I went out to shoot baskets at the wire hoop we'd bolted to the garage and was startled to see Dr. Animus Noakes standing, it's a great name, standing at attention outside of Swede's bedroom window. He was carrying a sack that I knew by now would, be, would contain a loaf of Mrs. Noakes' onion bread and, with luck, also a pie. Seeing me, he motioned for quiet, and I went and stood with him. Swede's window shade was pulled and strange noises issued from behind it. Typewriter keys, yes, but also a sort of desperate chant. Swede's own voice rendered distant and tribal, searching for meter. Dr. Noakes looked, at, looked to question at me. Doggone poem has given her trouble, I said. I felt pretty resentful about it. We weren't at school after all. A lot of good free time was going down the drain. Ah, said Dr. Notes, as if some great mist had parted. Then, Reuben, you look like a boy who understands how to treat a pecan pie. That same night, I remembered, because the pie was still very much with me, Swede showing up in my room, dragging her sleeping bag. It was one of those cheapies with vinyl shell, and I heard it crinkling all the way from the hall closet. She opened the door and pulled it in after her, vinyl and mold smelling entering too. And she spread it on Davy's bed and snaked down into it and thumped Davy's pillow until it was comfortable and she was sure I was awake. I whispered, Hi, sweet, not caring a bit that I sounded to overjoyed to see her. I was overjoyed. She'd been grasping in her room for days and I'd started to wonder if I had I made some grave mistake.
0: Spoken like every person who's
1: been married to a writer, right? That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> funny. That's funny. I'm like having a personal moment. Like there have been more than a few times that like people that have been close to me. Like, are you in a bad mood? No. Okay. Why? I just yeah. And you're like you're just in your head. You're just in your head. You're with the characters that you're writing.
2: Yeah. You're like oh, are there humans here? Yeah. Right.
1: Right. Like real ones,
0: not the ones that are in my head. (laughs) Right.
2: Yeah.
1: Ruben, can I sleep in here? Sure. There wasn't much room. All I could see of her looked like a white kitten crouched on the pillow. From now on, she said, till Davy gets back. The white kitten leapt and hovered. Sweet had set up. Reuben, you really think he'll come back at all? Now that was one of the worst questions I'd ever been asked. Out of nowhere, my throat lumped. I kept still, not to, I kept still to stop anything else happening. Reuben? But I couldn't talk about Davy right then, and it made me cross. Close, it made me cross how close I was to crying. A grouchiness emerged, which was no small relief. Whose voice is that? Ah, how come you've been in how come you've been in your room so much anyhow? Don't you know others of us live here? She was quiet a moment, during which I regretted being harsh. Then she said, "Well, I'll tell you about it if you want you grump." I sure had missed my sister. How do you want to go it. from there, hiding? Yeah. Sure. Yeah.
2: What happened to Swede, which I'll admit didn't make a lot of sense to me at the time, was that she couldn't kill Valdez. That is, Sunny Sundown couldn't kill him. Bear with me. After Finch and Bosca grabbed Swede that day, you might recall, Old Sunny's adventures turned a little grim. Remember how he kept trailing along after Valdez, finding worse and worse. One day, an upturned stagecoach and its driver's ghastly hue. The next, a blackened farmhouse and its family blackened, too. The next day, Swede sat me down and read me those lines. I'm sorry. The day Swede sat me down and read me those lines, I began to understand how truly scared she'd been. Till then, I'd been picturing Valdez as one of those banditos in Zorro, sitting a scrawny horse, sneaky grin and eyebrows, the kind of villain who'd dig for earwax to groom his mustache. (laughs) And you know, I'd liked him that way. Sly, nasty, but certainly no match for any hero worth a name. Now, overnight, Valdez had come unbound. He'd grown personally. He was a monster. I worried that real damage had been done to Swede, something that might plague her not for weeks, but years. I imagined her at twenty-five, hair gone white, skinny and ulcerated, a fearsome picture. Also, it bothered me that the poem now seemed likely to turn out wrong. One thing had to happen, and soon, that pig Valdez had to die, and sunny sundown had to kill him, honorably and inevitably, with one shot, and Valdez had to fall down on his back and lie outstretched on the scorched earth, his eyes wide open in the noonday sun, so that we knew he was dead and not faking it. I said to Swede, what do you mean you can't kill him? It doesn't work. I've been trying and it doesn't work. What can I do? She sounded a little panicked. I thought something might be happening to her mind. I said cautiously, can't you think of a word to rhyme with dead? (laughs) (laughs) She didn't answer. I'll help you, sweet. Let me help you. How about head? Like he got shot in the head and fell down dead. Or spread. He fell down dead with his arms outspread, Or lead. Say, lead is a natural. Ruben, that's not what I mean. How quietly she interrupted. Out of respect, I judged for the literary role I was on. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that I can't write it. I've written it already ten ways. More than ten. If she could write it, what was the problem? I sat confounded. Mistaking my silence for doubt, Swede recited. And as the gunshots echo back against the canyon walls, Valdez begins to totter. Now he staggers. Now he falls. David, why don't you pick
0: it up? Yeah, I said. Yeah. And later, Sundown finds a match and lights it with a stroke. Cause cause graves and sunbaked ground come hard. A man can use a smoke. Sweet, that's great. He buries him in everything. Now what's the matter? She'd flop or now what's the matter? She'd flopped back on the pillow. So much weight my praise carried. <laughs> Just because I write it doesn't mean it really happened. I had to hold that in my head a while. <laughs> I knew she knew what she meant, and I hoped she'd assume I did too. She said, it doesn't matter if it sounds good. I can't write it so he's really dead. You see what I mean? I said, it's just a poem, sweet. Here, tell me another ending. Heavy sigh. When judgment came as gunfire to, to determine bad from good, and Valdez lay all soaked in blood, and weary sundown stood. What's wrong with that? I demanded though. Honestly, I wasn't crazy about it either. I preferred the other one where Sonny lit the cigarette after putting Valdez in the ground. It doesn't work. She declared. Well, you can't bargain with someone who won't sell. If she was miserable and intractable about saying so, what could I do about it? This would have been a good time for me to shut up and go to sleep. But the slow fever of jealousy had been lit, Jealousy had been lit in my veins. Swede was talking some language to which I knew the words, but not the meanings. It scratched my pride. I tried making my voice gruff like Davies. Listen, Swede, who's running this story anyway? <laughs> she didn't answer. She was right not to. It was a dumb old question. I love The writing in this section is, is so good. So good. I love the bit that you read there at the beginning, Tim, where it says, Swede's own voice rendered distant and tribal, searching for meter. Dr. Noakes looked a question at me. Looked a question is a great line but Distant and tribal searching for meter is uh, a uh, fantastic, I mean, n- never before has a better line about the, uh, the act of trying to write verse been written. <laughs> <laughs> distant and tribal searching for meter is just wonderful.
1: Um, okay, so Heidi, well, go ahead, Tim, go ahead. How, how old, I'm, I forgot, who is older, Ruben or Swede? Ruben. Okay. You guys, I got. I have to say this. I, I, I'm glad that we read these pages because I had a problem with these pages. First, the things that I liked. I, it's a great way of telling of of telling the problem that is happening inside of Swede. It it kind of like it it incarnates it in a way. You know, she can't kill this bad guy just like she couldn't. She can't be rid of these two guys that molested her in the truck. But I have to say, I do not believe this psychologically. I don't, I don't believe that she... How do I say this? This may be more telling about me than her. So I give that as a caveat. I think there's kind of a simple solution when you're that age and your character won't die. You bust the you bust the literary wrench out and you force it all into place, right? And I think that it's
0: wait, hold on, hold on. You mean that that's what writers should do, or that's just what most young no, writers would do?
1: It's just what young writers would do. I th- I don't think it's what you should do. In fact, I think it's the exact wrong solution. And I think that our author is giving Swede. He's not just making her precocious, which I think she is, but I think that he's giving her years and a kind of maturity that I'm not sure that she's earned yet in the story that we've heard
0: i mean i think that I think that that's fair I think though that that's kind of the point in a sense because I mean I think that's where the line about how Ruben imagined her as twenty five and with white hair <laughs> and ulcerated um I think that that is kind of. A, a little bit of self awareness there by anger, uh, like almost like a self aware joke at at kind of the 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 potential of someone reading this scene the way you're reading it. But on the other hand, like so you're you're okay then. I mean, I don't I don't mean this to be. I'm not, I i do not mean this as an attack. Um, I'm just gonna say that in case it comes out wrong. But you're okay <laughs> with Jeremiah Land healing people and walking off wagons 30 feet and being thrown up in tornadoes and thrown five miles away and landing like he landed on a pillow, but then you're not okay with having this guy's daughter be an especially talented writer. I mean, I don't mean, and again, I don't mean that. I don't mean to be, I, I put my caveat there. Cause I don't mean that to right. be like
1: aggressive. <laughs> That's the thing is I, I think this book the the kind of magic of the book happens in the physical world but it is still psychologically speaking it's realism and i think that the, the, my complaint about this part of the book is that it's psychologically i don't think it's realism i don't think it's it, does that make sense um
0: yeah no no that that's a fair that i mean that's yeah. a, that, you answered my question okay <laughs> How do you want to take issue I, with what he's saying?
2: I No, because I think that the complexity and the nuance of this book lends itself to multiple perspectives. I think this is brilliant. I think this is one of the like greatest moments in a novel that I've read in a long time. So I loved it. I loved that. I think it's very childlike, actually, That and very childlike that this imaginative world that this young girl has built is the place where evil lurks and she can't rid herself of it. That now Valdez is no longer a comic villain who represents uh, some kind of innocent part of the imagination that's reserved for uh, what a child might define as evil Mm. who hasn't yet experienced it, but now she's experienced it profoundly and it has changed her and it has not only changed her internal world, but her creative world, to your point that you made before David, and that now Valdez represents everything that these boys have done to their family. And I think it's very telling that Davy's act of radical justice or vengeance, however, we, we interpret that doesn't rid her internal world of, Valdez that's super important I think
1: I I agree with you I agree with you that like the part that I find true and really powerful is that she can't get rid of Valdez my complaint is that as whatever she is a 9 or 10 year old she is psychologically mature enough to be able to recognize it In other words, um, how would I say this? It makes complete sense that she would be internally troubled by her inability to do away with evil in the world. But I don't, what I have a hard time buying is that she is kind of like philosophically aware enough to kind of step above herself and to look down at the story that she's writing and say, I can't do it. For me, it would be more realistic to say to not have her know why she can't kill the character.
2: Does she say that she knows, though? Because that—that that is my understanding of the scene, is that she, she's like, I can't kill him, I can't kill him, and that Ruben, She neither she nor Ruben really knows yeah, why. Her, her answer your,
0: is, it doesn't work.
2: Your point, though, Tim, I think, is valid, that she is mature beyond what a 9- or 10-year-old would right. be. Like, in, right. in the real world... So I think that that's true. I think you're bringing up a really important point. I think Scout was too in To Kill a Mockingbird. Like there's, but that the wise child archetype is as enduring in literature. We see it in Charles Wallace and you know, and even in Baby Yoda. Like <laughs> <laughs> that's like the, yeah. the idea of this uh, wise child. Little, yeah, the little child will lead them is an enduring archetype in literature, and kind of it feels like he's throwing all of them into peace like a river and it's working and it doesn't seem jumbled, but this one to you fell flat. You're saying.
1: Yeah. And it's not, it's hard to explain. It's.
0: So hold on. You said, I said, I said her answer was it doesn't work because Heidi was saying, well, she doesn't seem to be able to explain it. And you said the fact that she says it doesn't work, doesn't work for you.
1: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. It's almost like if you could eliminate that line, and just show the sort of um, the artistic undulations of not being able to kill the character. I think I would have bought it. It's the fact that she is aware of the fact that it's not working. You know what I mean? Okay, it's it's hard to explain. Like, as a young, when I was a young person, I would be troubled by a thing, and I could I would be troubled by a thing, and I would be acting upon the thing that troubled me let's say that i was afraid of the neighbor but acting upon a fear is different than being able to articulate and name your fear like i think there's there's a reason why child psychologists often will use like sandbox therapy to help children give voice to what they're experiencing because it is so extremely difficult at that age to articulate in kind of like rational language for other human beings what those fears and worries are. Thus, something like sandbox therapy. You kind of like allow the child to play, and through that play and figuring in sand, and you know, you can kind of the, the child can sort of articulate. What is troubling them? And I feel like she, Swede, the sandbox therapy is her inability to kill this bad guy, right? But the thing that I have a hard time with is her then like being able to sort of like back out of that and sort of adopt a sort of um, an elevated perspective that can put words on it.
0: Like the like a sort of ability to analyze the the meta aspect. Yes, of it's exactly
1: right. Like it's just not working. It's it's exactly right. So it's just not working for me.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. I gotta think it's about a, that.
1: I don't know that it's a small. I mean, it's like it's not a huge complaint because I do think that the scene. I'm with you, Heidi. I think the scene is like it's really good. It's yeah. really good and it really portrays what's going on internally. For Swede,
0: yeah, and I think that uh, you know, speaking of meta, from a from a sort of meta perspective, from like a bird's eye view, it's allowing the novel to to deepen its its contemplation, uh, to ask more questions about about what Davy did. You know, it's a, it's another way of not right. just helping us to understand Ruben and to understand Swede, but it's also allowing the novel to ask questions and contemplate justice and and think about notions of evil and bad guys and good guys and you know what does it mean to be a good guy what does it mean to be a bad guy and you know i I find it interesting that it was placed at this point in the book because it could have been placed you know later in the book or earlier in the book or something like that but it's placed at just the right time to to center those contemplations and center those questions before davy escapes you know um yeah this whole section here is is asking us to ask well maybe he deserves to be locked up you know yeah uh, maybe that's maybe he deserves so then when he does escape at the end of at the end of the section that we read for today when he does escape yes it's we don't feel like he is justified in escaping right you know he, you know maybe he's maybe we're sort of like relieved for him in a sense because we like this character he's one of our protagonists so to speak but we don't feel great about him doing it at the end of the section. Do you agree mm-hmm. with that? Would you say that, that you all three felt all, all three of us felt that way? Would you agree? Like, you don't feel like morally great about him escaping, even if you're like, well, Matt, he gets yeah. a second chance now. Is that, you know, like, oh, yeah. Yeah. If, yeah. I if don't we were his like friend, we'd be like, okay, good and bad. But at the same time, there's not like we don't feel good morally about it. Right. I all. think
2: the thing that it kept enforcing upon me was,
0: what's it? Can you? How-
2: the the, the feeling about his escape. Yeah yeah okay that and, and the the knowledge that we now have about about Davies um full involvement in this crime it it wasn't just protecting his family which in some ways would have been the easy way out. Like I, I think Leaf Anger just keeps I kept thinking as I was reading this section great novelists make their characters suffer <laughs> <laughs> and like the full extent of Suffering keeps like the 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 register of suffering keeps getting higher in this family, and more than you even expect. And um, that would have been easier to make Davy have just been defending Swede, and but he didn't. And but I think what I kept thinking about is um all all the justifications keep getting stripped away, and yeah. And so now what we're left with is just kind of like a radical naked love for this person, Davey. Mm. Like it isn't that in whatever happens next, it isn't going to be because they're defending justice. It's going to be because they love him.
1: Mm.
0: Mm. Well, I guess that gives us, that's a, a good place to sort of start wrapping things up because it takes us to the end of the section. Tim, did you want to say something there? No, no, no,
1: no. I, I mean, I agree, I agree with Heidi that I, I don't anticipate in this book that we're going to have Ruben or Swede say, gosh, you know what? Davey was right this whole time. He did that, you know, no. Yeah,
0: yeah. There's too many questions of, of doubt already in all of their heads. <clears throat> and I think that the using of, of Ruben as the, the character who reveals the questions of doubt, uh, you know, in the trial where he he says things that he wishes he hadn't said, and the and the other lawyer kind of draws it out of him, draws these sort of things that are harmful to Davy's case out of him. using Ruben in that way adds to the pathos of the story because mm. because it you know, Reuben feels um, like it's his fault, right? Um, it, and, it, and also at the same time, he realizes that he's saying the truth. You know, he says a lot right. there that he has to tell the truth. He's under oath. Um, he wishes he'd said it a little bit differently, but he realizes what he'd said was the truth. And so the fact that it doesn't, the fact it, the fact that it, um, Ruben says it in the way that he did, and he makes, you know, he says he got a little bit too big for his brushes, so to speak, in that scene where he, everyone was looking at him, and so it caused him to say it in the wrong way. That fact, while it bothers him, doesn't excuse or doesn't diminish the, the truth of the things that he said and the way that they change the way he thinks about his brother. And so on the one hand, he's at fault, but on the other hand, it causes him to see his brother in a different way. And that right. adds to the pathos of it. It being Reuben who reveals the facts of the, the case is, uh, you know, it sets up the, I, you know, I kind of view this as like the end of act one in a way, when he devi- escapes, yes. and it sets up the next act to be the sort of falling out of well not falling out in the terms of people falling out, but the the sort of <clears throat> fall the sort of fallout of
1: the nuclear fallout.
0: Yeah, of exactly of um Ruben realizing the truth of the fa- of the of the matter. Mm-hmm. Because he has sort of engaged, he's sort of been able to remain innocent, you know he and Sweet have been able to remain innocent and tell their stories and talk about things and come up with escape plans and get the, get the knives and sleep out on the porch and all that kind of stuff. But all that sort of Tom Sawyer-like innocence, that's gone now. You know, his brother has right. escaped and he's realized the truth of the facts. And he never can think about his brother in the same way anymore. His brother can never just be the kid who's sitting in the courtroom making faces at him to loosen him up. You know, it's, it's, it's so much more complicated than that. And so that makes the questions about their family you know what are they going to do what are, what's that what is how is their love for him and the complicated nature of the situation going to manifest manifest itself throughout the rest of the book so you know i i think that it's just a really well crafted really well crafted book hey at the end of the last episode i asked you if you each had a section or the passage a couple of lines or something that you really liked we don't need to go too deep into them but i'd love to hear you know what's a bit of writing in this section that you particularly were fond of. Heidi, do you have one?
2: Well, we read it already, um, with the Valdez storyline. I have to, I do want to point out a couple of things about that though. One of the things that I loved you, I think it was you that mentioned last week, David, how playful and funny the writing still is. And Tim, you've commented on that too. Um, the thing, one, one of the layers of that little bit of writing that we already read aloud is the poetry that Lee Finger writes in in Swede's voice is just perfect, yeah. and it's hysterical. Like it's really funny, and um, and it's almost then, good. <laughs> yes, it's like you know, like when Shakespeare writes bad poetry, and I'm not saying Lee Finger is Shakespeare, although he's a very skilled, wonderful writer. But shakes one of the one of the um, aspects of Shakespeare's genius is that he could write bad poetry, <laughs> um, and and that is true with, with Leif Inger too. Like he writes some very childlike and childish poetry. Um, it's like a talented Swede's voice.
0: It's like a talented child writing, copying. It's special. I,
2: I loved it. And, but there's also this undercurrent, as you said, a pathos to it, in which it is an objective correlative to Swede's internal world and to the actual form of this writing, which is written kind of like a Western. So I just think it's, brilliant everything about it it's just again it's one of those like the skill of it just like washes over me hmm. as i'm reading it
0: well that counts as to heidi's passage then so tim can you <laughs> you?
2: yeah
1: um i've got a, something on page 55 i'm just going to start reading i'm not going to do any context i think people yeah, will this, figure it out this is great this is the anticlimactic deumont to his whispered tornado story having whisked through four miles of debris cluttered sky Having been swallowed by the wrath of God and been kept not just safe but unbruised inside it, having been awakened mid morning in fallow field by a face looking retriever, Dad's response was to leave his prosperous track and to plunge his hands joyfully into the sewer. An explanation is beyond me other than to repeat what he would often say. The story ended, his hands tucking up the blankets. It was, I was treated so gently up there, kids. That was, that was that's a lovely good. bit.
2: The
0: anticlimactic denou- denouement to his whispered tornado story.
1: Yeah, that's great. And the, um, what was the other part that I liked so much? I loved the kind of like repeated clause. I'm just going to read the next sentence. Having been whisked through four miles of debris cluttered sky, Having been swallowed by the wrath of God and been kept not just safe but unbruised inside it, having been awakened mid-morning in the fallow field by a face-licking retriever, <laughs> it, I just love that repeating clauses. Been, having, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. The the tornado thing is interesting because in the section where he slaps the guy, it actually says the way it's phrased is, "I I hadn't in mind to say anything, and indeed I didn't." Far as I approached, Dad lifted his hand, sudden as a wind shift, touched Holgren's face, and pulled away. And I was struck by the way it, "sudden as a wind shift" seems to allude back to the tornado that picks up the father, as if the the whatever is in that tornado has been put in his fingers like a sort of Jedi lightning bolt or whatever, and you know he then uses it to touch the other guy's face. So one thing I'm going to be looking for is to see if that sort of Concept of when he does the father have some sort of tornado power? <laughs> I mean, right. I'm putting that in a very overly really simplistic way, but
2: right. Uh, one, Do you have one, David?
0: Yeah, the very last. Um, yeah, okay, the last two paragraphs. So he there he fell asleep on the porch, thinking he and Swede were gonna try to break Davy out. Next thing I recall is Dad kneeling between my bag and Swede's, waking us up, waking us before sunup. Strangely. I remember Mrs. De Kuller, uh that's how I'm going to say it, singing in her kitchen and the excited music of pans and perking coffee. And there was an agitation in dad's voice that made me think just for a moment that we were on our way west, the car packed and pointed toward the faint cries of geese, the thrill of the cold. Then I heard dad say his voice part of sleep, his voice coming off balance into my sleep like a man feeling in a dark room. The sheriff was here an hour ago. Wake, wake up, kids. The sheriff has been here. Kids, are you listening? Davies broke out, hmm. um, and the one thing that I really like about this is the reference to the geese, because the whole first yeah. section of the book is in the geese, and the, the there's you know they're trying to shoot at the geese, and then there's a lot of talk about the geese moving, you know, from one place to another and migrating, and there's a sort of the freedom of wild geese is a fascinating metaphor to use here uh, in the moment when Davy escapes, because we know how much he loves geese hunting but then he he just drops that in here and he has this ability um in the paragraph that tim read it references homer um and he has there's a number of times when he drops these similes in that almost come across like homeric similes um where they're not just you know they're 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 referencing the you know they're basically exploring the theme in a one-line comparison in what's happening and uh I, that's what I think. That's something that anger is really good at, and that he does really well here. And I, and then you know, at the end of the act, it just ties us back to the beginning of the book. You know, I, if this is the end of act one, like is my theory, then the wild geese gets brought back here in a callback to the very first chapter of the book, in know, in a way that's really, uh, really nicely done. It's just, and it's very, um, uh, what's the word? It's very, um, not comforting, but what's the word when it's like it feels right, you know, as a reader?
2: Like satisfying. Yeah, that's the yes.
0: word. That's the very normal everyday word that people use that my brain couldn't come up with in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very satisfying as a reader the way it just kind of comes together there. So that's my mm-hmm. that's that's something that I was thinking about. That's good. All right, guys. Well, next week we will discuss pages 94 through 148. So a little bit more than last time. Um 94 through 148. And uh, don't forget that if you want to participate, you can follow us on Instagram, on Twitter at CloserReadsPods. Uh, join the conversation in the Facebook group on, well, Facebook. And then also you can email us at closereadspodcast at gmail.com. Anything either of you want to add?
1: I got nothing else. You're empty? I'm empty.
2: <laughs> I, need- I really briefly was so moved by uh ruben on the witness stand because he identifies himself as a witness mm. and he feels i i just keep thinking that it's got to be such a defining moment that he witnessed against his brother and he judges himself so harshly for it although i see him as being just used by a skillful prosecutor yeah, but yeah he does not that is not how he judges himself um, I was very moved by that scene. I, I kind of skipped over it and had to go like steal myself to go back and read it, you know, cause it's just moving. And, um, so anyway, the witness thing was, felt important to me.
0: Hmm. That's, uh, I, it might come back up again.
2: Perhaps. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right, Tim. All right, Heidi. Uh, this is the last episode of 2019. Can you believe that? Oh, Wow. So wow. when we do record next yeah, time, it will be that next very year. futuristic year of 2020.
2: Next decade.
0: Yeah. yeah. We were gonna we're gonna enter a new decade. So the next time we were you get a new episode of Close Reads, we'll be kicking off a new decade of reading.
2: <laughs> That's amazing. So
0: to everyone who's been listening for the last, wow. you know, four and a half years or whatever, thanks so much. If you're new, thanks so much. Um, if you want to um support the show, you can go to patreon.com/slash closereads. You can um, a couple different tiers where you can support the show financially. We've got some some show swag uh, that we can send you bookmarks and t shirts and mugs and posters and all that. Uh, but also, those of you who don't know, at the end of January, we will be kicking off a new bi weekly um, episode for our Patreon supporters where we're going to be going through crime and punishment. So every two weeks, we'll record. On Crime and Punishment, we're going to do that into the summer, and then after that, we're going to do Dickens' Hard, Time for the sec- Hard Times for the second half of the year. So, in addition to all the regular shows, in addition to the plays, the thing, and the daily poem, and then the show you just listened to, there's also going to be the bonus, the bonus stuff on Crime and Punishment this this winter and spring. So, again, if you want to get access to that, or you just want to support the show, you can go to Patreon.com/slash Close Reads to do that, and uh, you know, acquire some sweet show swag which uh, well I done. challenge everybody to go you online. That. Say that fast three times, take a video of yourself and post it on the Facebook page. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, and we're going to get a schedule out on that, um, on the, clo- on the um, crime and punishment stuff for the, for the bonus episodes uh, here soon. So, all right. Well, with that for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, for all of us here at the network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for reading. Happy new year. And until next time, happy reading. What did I say there? Did I say thanks for you- listening?
2: You said Some Yes I'm sure you did Should I say that again? I don't remember <laughs> No You did great You did say happy reading twice yeah. But you know what Sometimes A very skillful oratory repeats himself Yeah that No that
0: was Bring a mistake <laughs> Let me just Let me just do that again For Logan just I kind of like it
2: Leave
1: it David I think you should leave it And this stuff That we're recording At the very <laughs> end yeah. Alright
0: you know what Logan leave it all in We're gone now And I'm hitting the stop button Farewell <laughs>